Well, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church. It is a, a blessing and an honor to be to be back, and I hope you have enjoyed my absence because <laughs> uh, we are continuing through the the gospel, uh, the the not the Gospel of Matthew. We are continuing through the summer series on Galatians. Uh, this morning we'll be in uh, chapter three, finishing chapter three. Uh, starting in verse 19. I will read uh, from verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Uh, More than likely, I will be just ending at verse 25 today uh, for your sake. And so, and time. And as we uh, we look to the Word, uh, I would ask that uh, you take time to consider uh, the law and the gospel. Uh, As part of the sabbatical, I haven't listened to any of the sermons that were preached in the previous chapters, and so if I repeat a lot of things that have already been said, I do not apologize, and I will listen in the coming weeks to uh, Bo and Stuart. But I wanted us to focus on this idea of law and gospel, as that is what Paul's focus is as we end this chapter 3, and so we'll be talking predominantly about the law today. Uh, and, and perhaps you've lived most of your Christian life with a view of the law as like something that used to be and is not important anymore, which is wrong. Uh, I'm sorry, it might take me a while to get tactful again. and so. But you also might have a view of, of that the law is, is this thing that, that must be followed to the T, and you have your checklist, and you're using that checklist to look at not just your own life, but everyone in your life to make sure they know just how much of a failure, failures they are in light of the law, which is also wrong. As a matter of fact, the law and the gospel still are in tandem working today. And so as we investigate Paul's um, kind of latter portion of chapter 3 here today, I pray that our eyes would be open to the understanding of the necessity of the law and its, and its interplay or interchange with the gospel. I'll be reading uh, from the verse of this morning. Uh, after I finish that reading, I ask that you take a moment of, of silent, reflective prayer, uh, a time to confess unrepentant sin a time to ask God to open your heart and your mind by the power of the Holy Spirit to the truth of His Word. That your own idols you've created and bowed down to in this week, months, years that you have not toppled, that they would be made clear to you. If you're here this morning and you are outside of the faith, you are not a Christian, I ask you to consider the words you hear today. God calling sinful, broken, rebellious man to redemption through the Son, Jesus Christ. Reading now from verse 19 through 29. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Please take this time to pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as the faithful gather on the Lord's day, we come of one mind, united, and in communion with God, through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And we come to celebrate in that union, we come to celebrate the works of Jesus Christ his work on the cross, his humiliation, his death, taking the curse of sin for his people, undeserved, innocent. And as that great Passover lamb slain before the foundation of the world has purchased redemption for his people. And so as his people, from the first century until now, we come here, on the first day of the week, gathered together as the elect of God to worship our great God. God, now I ask that you be with your people through the Spirit and live in our hearts, open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the Word. Show us the frailty of the idols we have put in your place. 
Show us the finiteness of the things we chased after that are not you. Show us the folly of hoping in anything but the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. And with a renewed vigor through the Spirit and the Word, we would seek through that empowered Christian life to follow you. Lord, and that this life would lead to the glory of your name. God, now challenge us in our own sinfulness and rebellious ways and comfort us that your grace is sufficient through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all glory be to your name in this continued time of public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the history of Christianity, the law and the gospel, the law in particular and how it relates to the gospel, has been a mystery, a stumbling block, and at times a great burden for the faithful. Paul, in one of his earliest letters, is writing to a congregation with, that has been infected, as, as it were, with a false teaching about the gospel. By and large, this teaching or these teachers were known as Judaizers. They were those that professed the faith of Christ, the Christian faith. They expounded the gospel that Christ died for their sins, was raised on the third day, ascended, and will come back to claim the faithful and set up his kingdom. Yet they had come to a place where they were so enamored still by trying to figure out how the law interacted with this grace by faith alone that in that misunderstanding, they came up with a plan, as it were. And what that was is that they told people, yes, you've been saved by faith, in Jesus Christ, but there are certain ways that you can gain favor with God by a strict adherence to the Mosaic law. It is why Paul is so, in the tenor of the way that this is written and the language used, is so upset because it's a complete destruction of what the gospel is. There is no saved by faith alone in Christ alone plus anything. And so the way the law intersected with the gospel and the misunderstanding was leading to the faithful in Galatia to doubt and wonder and start to look at this faith as something impossible because they had to pursue it through works of their own. And we've gone, you've gone through several chapters here through the summer so far. But as we intersect with this, there's one verse in particular that I, I am not covering that you have to have written down, circled in your Bible, put it in your house, because it helps you understand 
the totality of the gospel message. And if you hold fast to it, you will not be confused. And it's one of the great 316s of the Bible. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? He's telling you that the time when God visits Abraham and shows him as it is, speaking to him of his seed and, and the seas and, and, and the stars and all, everything will be as the stars of the sky. He was telling him then the promise to Abraham was the redemption that will come through his line through Messiah. He's telling him directly, the blessing isn't that you will have many physical descendants. The blessing is that you will have many spiritual descendants. And the reason that will happen is because one will come who you have been waiting for, who we all have been waiting for since the fall of man. And so that understanding of the promise, that that was the promise to Abraham, will make sense to you as we read through the rest today. In 17, when it talked about 430 years afterward became the law. So in 18, for the inheritance comes by law and no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. He's setting up an argument if to simplify it for you, promise preceded the law. Promise is greater than the law. The law, as we're going to read today, came in for another reason. But it has to do with the promise. The promise of redemption. The promise of breaking the cycle of sin in Genesis 3. The one who would come from the seed of woman. This is all in that same avenue of teaching this is not a segregated understanding paul's looking to the idea of the problem is sin the problem is still sin god made the answer to that through the seed of abraham that he promised to abraham that one would come who would break this cycle and then now the law the law paul is arguing to give it all away the law cannot save the law cannot make you righteous But he's going to tell us what the law can do. So in 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. All of that to kind of lay out then why then the law. He's going to ask questions throughout the finality of this teaching. Why then the law? Is the law then good? And all these things. He's answering these questions in rhetorical fashion to let his audience know, which is this church in Galatia, which would then go throughout the other churches, that there's a real need to understand the place of the law as it lines up to the gospel. It was added because of transgressions. This is an interesting topic. The law itself 
I want you all to contemplate for, I was going to say a second, but that's weird, for a few moments. What do you believe that means? Not in a postmodern way. I don't care what your opinion of it is. Like, what do you think Paul is saying by this particular letter? Think of Paul's other writings, if you're familiar with them. What does Paul talk about the law in Romans as it appeals to transgression? The law historically has been looked at through the history of Christianity to have kind of more than one use. Meaning that the law, in terms of of how it's used throughout the Old and New Testament, you can see it used for different reasons. The first of those reasons, you would say, is to point out transgression and to provoke transgression. What does that mean? That means that according to Paul in Romans 7, it wasn't until he saw the law that he actually wanted to break the law. And so 430 years after the promise, the law is given to Israel through an intermediary, meaning Moses is the intermediary between God and the people, already making it less than the promise as the promise went directly from God to Abraham. And the law was brought in for a purpose. It was to point out sin and to show the absolute highness, holiness, otherness of what a most holy creator God looks like. And so transgression after the giving of the law increases. It doesn't decrease. Let me give you an illustration. Through our current wanderings, as the Newman house is being in my opinion, too slowly rebuilt. We spent some time out in the country at, at, at a friend's place. It was small. It was in, it was in the woods. There's like nothing but woods and pigs to shoot. And like, it was amazing. I was the only one that liked it, but it was amazing. But we also had a lot of chance to read because the TV didn't work, which was also awesome. I think I was the only one that liked that too. But we read these books called the, I know some of you are reading them or have just recently got them to the kids called the Wing Feather Saga. Uh, it's written by a, a, a music guy um, whose last name is Peterson. I say music guy, last name Peterson. I'm not a music person. I know I like a couple of his songs. But there's one section in the first book, and there's three children, and it's two boys who are older, and then a daughter who is younger. It's Janner, Tank, and Lily. And in one of the episodes, the young girl is kidnapped by a monster, and she's saved by a crazy man who has socks on his arms. You're you're still with me, right? (laughs) And he, he chokes out one of the bad guys, which I enjoyed, and then he rescues her. And then they find out that the two boys find out he lives in a giant tree house, in a forest that's filled with creatures that want to eat you. Amazing, right? So the mother finds out, 
And she, as the children are put to bed, she tells her father, the children's grandfather, who is an ex-pirate who has a peg leg. I know. It's amazing, right? She tells him, Daddy, I'm going to forbid them to search sock arm guy in the treehouse in the jungle of death. That's the Ken paraphrase. I'm going to forbid the boys to go seek him out. And this is what her father says. You might as well guarantee that that's exactly what they're going to do. Every man, doesn't matter how old he is in the room, when he heard jungle of death and giant treehouse was like, I'm going. (laughs) Now, regardless of the mother wanting to keep her son safe, the more she was going to say, that is dangerous, I forbid you to do it, in their minds immediately is like like telepathy between brothers. We are totally doing that. This is the idea of, of the law. The law coming to the mind of sinful man. When the law was, as Paul is explaining in Romans 7, when he was reading, do not do this, his first thought was, I must do this. And so the law points out to sinful man in the holiness of God, his standard. In sinful man's natural reaction is rebellion. You see, reading the law is the clearest indication of your own depravity, of the sinfulness of man. Reading the law and thinking instinctively, that's all the fun stuff. So when Paul talks about the law in a way that it was meant to bring transgression and the promise The promise of Messiah is to bring life. And so when Paul writes this to the church in Galatia, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put to place through angels by an intermediary. The the through angels, meaning that the angels were present, as is recorded in uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, in Stephen's uh, description of the history of Israel. He also accounts that, that tens of thousands of angels were present when the law was given to Moses. And so the angels are present. Moses is receiving it to give to the people. It's this grandiose thing. And yet Paul is counting that as secondary compared to this promise. So these are, these are reasons he's writing why the law is less than the promise. But then... The next question is asked, if that's a fact, then in 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Meaning, if the law is bringing transgression and the law is bringing death, condemnation, and judgment, and the promise is life everlasting, and the promise is the breaking of the cycle of sin, is then the law contrary because he's now asking another question should the law then be done away with is there no use for the law now that we are in the promise meaning we have come to faith we are believers in christ 
in a post-second great awakening evangelical south, once saved, always saved? What point the law? Look at Paul's answer. Is it contrary? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. It unfolds a little bit more. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What does that mean? It means if you could look to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and go, I've been doing that my whole life. I've got this down. Got a few more years left, and then perfect in my righteousness. There were a people that believed that. We have been reading about them for quite some time now. In Matthew, they're called Pharisees. One thing the Pharisees believed, and even quoted in the Mishnah, Torah saves. Torah, and the memorization of Torah saves. What did that mean? It meant that in their own self-delusion, in the Mishnah, where they make a commentary out of the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they, they expanded the law to close to 800 rules that you could follow. And if you followed all those rules, you were righteous. In a forensic sense, meaning that you were righteous before God. Paul was trained in that. Paul was their mad dog who was chasing the church and persecuting them because the church was, in their view, heretical. But what they believed was that you could be righteous. In a forensic sense, what I mean by that is that God has to look at your life, oh, well, they followed Mishnah, not guilty. And in their self-delusion, in the height of their power, The one who was the promise comes in humiliation in the incarnation. And what does he tell them? Any man that looks on a woman with lust has committed adultery. Oh. It's not the physical action It's the wayward heart. And then every time Jesus interacts with these opponents, what does he do? He shows them and even explicitly tells them, you don't know the scriptures. You cannot gain God's favor. And even adds, although not in these words, That's why I am here. He is the promise. And the law, because it opens the eyes of sinful man and woman to their own rebellion, 
in perpetuity. Given a choice, fallen man or woman, what are they going to do? Here's the law of God. Sounds like the opposite is the right thing to do. There was a need for the the law to come in to point out transgression. Think of it in a historical sense of Israel. Abraham, as they're talking about, is the seed. Now, before Abraham, you had Shem. Before Shem, you had Noah, right? And before Noah, you keep going backwards to Seth, and you find yourself in that horrible place of Genesis 3. And then there's the fall, then there's the curse, and then there's the promise of the seed of the woman. And then moving forward, that's what you're looking for. Abraham, the one who receives the promise, and then you know Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. But somewhere before David, and somewhere after Judah, They receive the law. And the law is given to Israel. And does their sin decrease or increase? It's with purpose that it eventually leads to their exile. And it's with purpose that what we see overall is God's long suffering grace and mercy towards his people. I want to read to you a strange text you might seem for what the subject is. I wonder if you'll see some of the interplay or hear the interplay. I think that is so important with understanding the law and the gospel. As it pertains to what the reformers called the third use of the law, which Paul hasn't actually got into yet in this letter, but he will starting in chapter 5. And that's how the law still interacts, intersects in the life of the Christian man and woman. Meaning if law was given to increase transgression and make man and woman look to their own sin and understand their need of redemption, the law is supposed to make you look and go, that is not possible for me. I cannot do it. But the promise, the promise is God saying, I know you can't do it. But the Son did it. The Son fulfilled it. The Son defeated Satan. The Son took the crushing blow of your curse on him. The son, the promise, fulfilled the law, looked at it and saw its beauty, looked at it and did not rebel, looked at it and fulfilled it all the way as slow march to the cross. And as a sinless perfect Passover offering for you and for me and for all who believe until he returns. The promise fulfilled the law. For the rest of us, 
The law is supposed to awaken in us through the gospel and the power of the Spirit a dread of judgment. A dread of the judgment that is due us for our rebellion and our sin. I want you to look at Psalm 119. Considering that, and I'm going to read bullet train style, so you might not be able to keep up, with an understanding of the author mixing these ideas of I love the law. Oh, I am lower. God, give me. He's ex- the, the, Psalm 119 is beautiful as we're seeing someone who knows their sinfulness, acknowledging their love for the law, and at the same time acknowledging their own woeful state. You Maybe you've never read 119 that way, and through bullet train style, we'll see if we can help. I won't even be announcing the verses very well. I'm just going through what I've marked. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Okay, there it is. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And then look at five. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, that I shall not be put to shame. How? Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. And then in seven, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. All there in the first eight verses of the longest psalm is an acknowledgement of the beauty of the law, an acknowledgement at the inability to keep the law, and then finally this important part, this really important part, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The author is exclaiming, the need for understanding the law, the reality and the inability to keep it. And because God has enlivened his mind to understand his response is praise. Going back to Paul. The law is not contrary. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, again, Faith, promise, Christ, understand, Paul's language in Galatians, those are all the same things. The promise to Abraham is Christ. Christ is Christ, but then also the promise is Christ. In the same time, the gospel is Christ. Everything is looking to Christ. Faith is Christ. So now before faith came in 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, until the time of Christ. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. This is an important text. The word guardian in Greek is generally where we get the word, or specifically where we get the word pedagogue from. Pedagogue, in this time, in Paul's time, 
was actually a teacher, someone who was hired to teach and educate a child. And so that person's job was more than just education. They would feed the child. The child would follow them around. They were paid specifically for this task for the time period that would generally be close to a decade. And they were to teach them everything about life. In this context here, philosophy, the law, all these different things. And what Paul compares the law to is a teacher who is there for a time. And then when the time comes for them, for that student that they've learned all that they can, then that teacher, their job is done. So Paul comparing this time before redemption in Christ is the law as teacher, the law as guardian, the law as one who is, is there to for the learner. But now he's going to be shifting his dialogue in Galatians. He's letting his congregation know it's as if you had already been released from the teacher and you have now moved into adulthood and you have received the gospel. And so then now saying, I have the gospel, but now I want to go back to my childish ways. Paul's trying to deliver here in these verses an explicit sense that the law leads people to the gospel. You know what sin is because of the law. And so in that first sense or that first use of the law, as pointing out your transgressions, pointing to the God's own holiness, drawing you somewhere in the hopeless endeavor of, I cannot do this, God is too holy. What do I do? And that's Paul's point. The promise, Christ, it's been done. You've already received it. Now, to be forthwith with, with the congregation. When you live the Christian life in abject anxiety, in complete turmoil because you do not see the perfection that you believe you should have in your life. You don't see it in your spouse's life. You don't see it in your children's life. You don't see it in the other people that you are with or friends with in church. And so then the Christian life becomes rules to follow. You've missed the interchange. You've missed what the psalmist is crying out. When he noticed that his own heart was wayward, and later in 119, he considers himself as clinging to dust. He then cries out, but I will worship you. 
You see, God didn't call you to a place that lacks assuredness in his work. And when you consider the Christian life by how good you're keeping rules and everyone else is, the joy of his work has escaped you. And you are not operating in light of the promise. You're operating in light of that which is supposed to lead you to the promise. You're going back. You're embracing the Judaizers. Our lives as believers in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, understand Paul's language in Romans. You are at war with yourself. The gospel has redeemed you. Christ's work on the cross has purchased you for him, for his glory. And the more you consider yourself worthless, not worthy, or whatever it might be that is so prevalent today, you're not being hyper-holy. You are casting off the work of Christ. He calls you to see his work, not yours. The law calls you to repent. The law calls you to your own sinfulness. But the reason that we cling to Christ is in light of our own sinfulness, that we should be broken by we then go, but the promise. And then we cry out like the psalmist, and my bones are breaking. Please do not turn from me. And we know, we know, I pray you know, he does not. Paul is showing this congregation, if you have any 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 doubt about what I'm saying. This is a congregation that is in spiritual turmoil because they've been told they're free in Christ, but now they've been told, no, you have to follow all these rules and then you build your way up to freedom in Christ and, and that kind of, that lack of assuredness where Paul's going to point them to the promise and then chapter five, he's not going to tell them and so the law cast it away. He's going to say, no, the law is there for transgression. It points out the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God. God draws you through the power of the Holy Spirit and God's elective purpose to faith in Christ. And now that you are free and saved and now you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and sanctifying you, you now have a chance to fight against your own sinful nature, to flee from temptation. But when you fail, when you look at God's holy law and you say, I failed, that's not the last step. The next step is, God, I'm a person 
of unclean lips. From a people of unclean lips. Have mercy on me. And when you have, ask him to have mercy on you and you're, you're asking forgiveness for your sin, it's a forgiveness you know you already have. Because he's already pointed to the end. From now until Christ returns, your inheritance, the blessed hope of the Christian church, the final eschaton, the beauty of the king in all of his glory, awaits you. And so this guardian, the law, which revealed to you your sin and God's holiness until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I don't use children books as my illustrations often, but because there was no TV, I read all four of the books in a week. And there's things I don't want to give away, spoilers or whatever. But there's a beautiful interchange in the fourth book between the two brothers. And if you've read the books or your kids have read the books, you probably know where I'm going. And, and all that's exchanged through, I have a almost 13-year-old and a 9-year-old son. Uh, they generally break furniture more than they get along. I'm probably a little bit at fault for that. But there's an interchange which they highlight this relationship. And the, a phrase is, is given that, that isn't often given between brothers, where one tells the other, I love you. And something happens, obviously. And the reality is, there's a, there's a deep-seated misunderstanding of how the law interacts with the Christian life. And I feel so often when I talk to people, when I counsel with them, when I listen to them, they're still living under the dread of the judgment of the law. And if you are in Christ, you need not live that way. You are free in Christ. Your failures are something to build future sanctifying victory throughout the future of your life until Christ returns. Do not cast doubt if you believe in Christ on your salvation because you're not casting doubt on yourself. You're casting doubt on the promise, on the object of our faith, on our Passover lamb of our king. He calls you to freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this short time we 
could consider the law and the gospel, and it is too short and more than likely not eloquent or well enough taught. But God, through your Holy Spirit, I pray the faithful would see the law and the gospel rightly. And even as believers, the law is is useful and good for us. The standards of who God is, to be reminded of his holiness, to have our consciences moved by our own sinfulness, which should move us as the psalmist did, not to dread, but to worship. God, let us worship God, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, our promise. Let us marvel at the work of God, that before the beginning, before the foundation of the world, this plan was moved out to its finality. And that one day we will be face to face in glory with the promise. Strengthen the faith of the faithful, Lord. Strengthen the weak. Heal the brokenhearted. Remind the weak and lowly of your glory. Let us turn our eyes to you, Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.